The gospel lesson comes to us this morning from the good news according to St. John, the 20th chapter. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus Standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Then Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the gospel of our Lord. In the precious blood of the Lamb. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, musicians and singers and congregation, singing joyfully. To know and believe that God hears that and enjoys it, enjoys hearing you sing and harmonize with your heart. And children, if you'd like to go to Children's Church at this time, you may do so. So that was uplifting to sing. And I want us to get to an uplifting place again. It is Easter. But to get there, we need to go on a little bit of a journey first. I know we didn't get to celebrate all of the events of Holy Week together. And for those of you who weren't able to attend services or to reflect on what all of this means since last Sunday... I want us to take a little bit of a walk together uh, before we return to the place of joy and festivity. Uh, and that is because I was uh, assigned this text 
This text is from the lectionary, uh, without going into it, you know, it's a, a way that the church has organized the reading so that every three years you will read pretty much the entire scriptures uh, and you'll walk through the life of Christ each year. Uh, that means that the last time I preached this text was exactly three years ago, Easter Sunday, 2020. And I vividly remember the last time I preached this passage. It was one of the worst days of my life, certainly one of the worst days of my life as a minister. I was here in New York City, of course, with some of you, uh, but not in person. No, we had shut down the entire city just a few weeks before. If you remember, they're setting up field hospitals in Central Park. There was a Navy ship coming in to serve as a medical ward. Many of our friends and colleagues and family and neighbors had left the city temporarily or for good. I had had to bike uh, all the way up to B&H in sort of Upper West Midtown to find one of the last uh, cameras to be able to somehow broadcast from my living room with my four kids and wife who were acting as the congregation on screen. And that's what we did that Easter Sunday <laughs> while the sirens blared out the window and many thousands of our neighbors were dying, including some of our own family members and friends. Afterward, my family and I walked around to the handful of people we could manage in one long walk and yelled up to the stoop or to their apartments, Christ is risen. They'd yell, He's risen indeed. And we'd try to talk from a few minutes away. And that was as much connection as we got on that Easter Sunday. It was truly devastating. And we experienced what it was like to be quite literally subject to death. I'm sure most of you remember your experience on Easter Sunday three years ago, 2020, the last time I preached this text. Before we conclude, I reframed some of the questions I asked during that sermon, but I also knew that it was broadcast through a cruddy, a cruddy, uh, a cruddy system, uh, through a bad internet, uh, onto YouTube, and probably only a handful of people were there with us anyways, and so most of you won't remember these questions, uh, but I thought it was interesting to revisit things I was asking of our congregation under those circumstances. I despise everything about having lived through that experience in the years that followed. Lots of it still makes me cry when I think about it. But that Easter, that kind of Easter experience actually still has a lot to teach us about what Easter really is. See, Easter is a message, and more than a message, it actually claims to be a power that deals with life and death. It is good news, we say. And in order for it to be truly good news, it must first be a message about death. And that's where it starts. John chapter 20, last couple chapters of his book, his good news about Jesus of Nazareth. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone where Jesus was buried, had been taken away from the tomb. Mary woke up on the first day of the week and she walked straight toward death. After having lived through it that week up close, watching the loss of everything she had known and loved, she now went to the place where it was buried. This Mary Magdalene, 
who in this gospel will become the first worshiper of the risen Christ in a few moments, here is coming before the sun has risen to a tomb alone. It's still quiet and no movement. There aren't any trumpets or violins or saxophones. There weren't any family and friends gathered together, no children laughing or playing games, no beautiful hats or lovely flowers. There may have been flowers. She was in a garden, but it was still dark, so she couldn't have seen them yet. Now, on the first Easter Sunday, there was only a woman who was alone, and she couldn't sleep because her heart was broken, so she walked by herself in the dark to a graveyard to mourn. And so there is something about that first Easter that still has something important to say to us about what Easter really is. Because just think about it, until that moment in the story of the entire Bible, everyone had been busy planning and active and trying to get ahead in the world or to change the world or to figure out who they were and what they should do. And some of them had decided to follow this man named Jesus, thinking he had the answers. And what he had done is lead them all the way to a cross and to a grave. See, at this point in the story, they're all simply Good Friday people. Except they didn't know that Friday is good yet. It's more accurate to say they were in death and darkness people. Their lives had come to a sudden terrifying halt. Their life was out of control and stuck. And they were afraid. They witnessed their hope, their friend, their teacher, their rescuer, their king, their future, their plans die. And there was despair. Lord, Why? There was terror. Are we next? There was confusion. This is not how it was supposed to be. There was waiting. What now? And they were huddled together, some of them, in the solitude and silence of helplessness in a room. Everything that they had, their passion, their loyalty, their plans, their strength, their skill, their resources, none of it had meant anything. There's nothing they could do to save Jesus. There's nothing they could do now to bring him back or to give hope to themselves or to the world. Mary goes to a tomb, and she finds that Jesus has been moved in her understanding. So she runs to John and Peter. She says, come with me. We need to face this. Jesus is dead. He's in the tomb, and now they've moved his body. Come with me to this graveyard. Face it. They have to face that the Lord and friend is dead, and now he seems to be gone. And Mary says the same to us. If you want to be Easter people... If you want new life, you first have to travel to this tomb. You have to come to the end of yourself and face it. Jesus himself had said before he died, if there is any person anywhere ever who wants to follow me in my way of life leading towards shalom, then you have to actually take up a cross and carry it just like me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, when Christ calls any person to himself, he bids him come and die. Woody Allen, on the other hand, famously quipped, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Right? We don't like to think of death or look at death or admit that death is coming for all of us. We can't avoid it, so we try not to think about it. But even there, we are called to be honest 
Not only that death faces us, but that death faces all things and that we are powerless before it. Even, perhaps especially on Easter, not to turn away from it and skip over it like it's just something small. To be honest about death is not the way it's meant to be and this is not okay. And why did it have to end here? And here, to listen and to hear in that place that Jesus... When we come face to face with death, when we are Good Friday people, when we are mourning, right there in our terror and grief, he shows up and he says, why are you weeping? The angels ask her first and then he asks her too, why are you weeping? There, before we even know who he is, if there's any new life coming, if we will go to the tomb, if we will go to the cross, if we will sit there and look at the death that awaits us. Look at the death that in some sense we deserve. And to ask ourselves, why do you find yourself weeping and mourning? What are you crying over? What does it tell you about what you're hoping for in life and what you're hoping in? And I ask you this morning, why are you weeping? What's your graveyard? On the more surfacey end, you know, what did you think would give life and it's not delivering? I thought when I finally got to this stage or this place or this relationship, I'd finally be happy. But nope, just as many tears as there are laughs. Where did your dreams go to to die? Perhaps you're a follower of Christ and you might ask, where's that place in life where you felt like, I've been following you faithfully, Jesus. I followed you all the way through the hard stuff and now you're gone. Where are you? It feels like Jesus is just dead. Jesus asked this question, Mary, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? And note that she has an answer in a moment, but he has another question. We learn from it that it's not her possessions she's weeping over. It's not the touch of men that she had known before in her life. It's not just the loss of her authentic friendships. She is mourning the loss of Jesus. And this is the first hint of good news. When you mourn, when you go to the tomb, when you look at death and you genuinely consider it, your own or as you see it in the world around us, you're in the right starting place. If you're only mourning the wrong things, though, that, oh, I didn't get what I wanted, or, oh, I tried this, or, or whatever it may be, you begin to see that all of these ways are ways that could just lead to more death. Well, I didn't get it, I'll try harder. I don't like that person they took it from me, I'll get them back. And you start to just spread little deaths everywhere. But if you mourn the right things, you hear, blessed are those who mourn. And Mary is an example of mourning the right thing. To mourn the loss of life itself, the one who gives life. To mourn the loss of her redeemer, her savior, her friend. And so we ought to be known as people who mourn brokenness and the loss of life wherever we see it, but especially all those places where we've cut God off from our inner life, from our relationships, in our systems in the world that we build and we conduct our activities. To mourn all the ways in which Jesus has been put on a cross or put to death by us. This is the kind of why are you weeping, as we'll see, that leads to life. 
That's why he asked her next, whom do you seek? What is it about what you're mourning for that can teach you what you're actually seeking? And are you seeking things that lead to life or just other things to maintain this half-life that you're living? No, do you want real life? If so, just as Jesus was handed over to the religious and political powers that be, we must be handed over to a God who sees our attempts at power and privilege and control as ways that lead to death. And if we will mourn the ways that we do this, mourn the loss of God in our lives, we start to ask, well, whom do you actually seek? What is it that you most deeply long for and want? If we will follow Jesus to the end of ourselves, what will we see there in the dark? And what you will see first is a God who suffers with us and for us and as us. Jesus. Standing there. This Jesus that came to identify with us. To be with us to take on the entire human experience. Who came to embrace even the worst aspects of human experience so we would not be alone in it. So that there's no boundary of pain or exclusion or estrangement or despair beyond which a human being can pass that Jesus himself has not already gone through. Do you know how far God was willing to go to be with us, to identify with us? All the way to death. In Jesus, God was willing to die with us to embrace the absurdity of death and even death on a cross. To see the pain and the fear and the folly and the beauty and the wonder of life and death. To see what it means to be human and to say, I'm in. I'm all the way in with you. I want to take on your life. I want to be bone of your bones, flesh of your flesh. I want to be with you. I will take on all human mortality and brokenness and illness and sickness and confusion and agony and loneliness, and I will embrace it here on the cross. I will take it into this tomb, and that's who God is. If you will follow Jesus, you will go to the darkness and to the end of yourself, and right then you will begin to discover a God who has already been through it and is there. And has blazed a trail through. He says to her, whom do you seek? And she looks at him and she doesn't know because she's crying so hard she can't even see him straight right there. And looking at death and mourning can definitely do that to us sometimes. So that we can't even see straight. All we can see is our sorrow and our sadness and our weeping. We're not even sure what we're seeking. I, I, th I thought it was God maybe. I don't know where he is. They took him somewhere. I haven't seen him in a while. Who are you seeking, he asks her again. Whom? Not what, not just your circumstances. Whom? He's investigating her now. See, Mary's not really looking for Jesus. Jesus is looking for Mary. He's come and found her. And I would say even this morning, you're not really looking for Jesus. He's looking for you. See, Mary went in to sit before a dead man and to embalm him and to mourn him and to remember him and to be with him, even if it was just his body. And maybe some of this, this is how we think about our faith. Yeah, it's how I grew up. It's what I do. Time to time, it's there when I need it. She, she went to sit in the graveyard, but she finds out she's not in the graveyard. She's actually in a garden because when she sees him, she says, well, the only person that would be up this early in the dark through my tears would be the gardener. And so maybe you are the gardener. And she was right. 
Jesus was and is the gardener. He starts by pruning her. Whom do you seek? What is it you really want, Mary? And know that when a gardener gets to work, when the gardener is a good gardener, when the gardener is God, he begins to prune us, and it's always so that he and we can reap a harvest. It's only when we go down into the earth that we can begin to be brought again to new life. Once the old is dead, the new can move in. And if you think, if you need to hear again that it's life that we are designed for, John himself, who told us this story, who wrote it down, who was there on this first Easter Sunday, in just a few moments in his gospel text, will write this. He said, now Jesus did many other things in the presence of all his disciples. I didn't even write them down in this book, but these ones I wrote for one reason, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Son of God, and that when you believe, and by your belief, you will have abundant life in his name, by his power. See, the people who get to experience resurrection and new life are those who come to the end and are waiting to the tomb. Everyone else was still busy running Rome and running the synagogues until someday they died. But these folks here get to move through Good Friday to become Easter people. That's how you become an Easter person. That's how you enter into abundant life. You get to have joy, life abundantly, things that the world can't offer. Easter. Easter then is, of course, not only starts with death, but leads to life. We find ourselves open and empty and confused like Mary, but seeking, seeking now the one for whom we were made and for who our hearts long, the one who will only satisfy all of our longings. We find that God is not dead or distant like we'd imagined, but he's very much alive and well, ready and able to do new things we could not even think up or imagine or begin to ask for. See, Easter is a celebration that God came into our world, into our history, and through one person, a single man overturned death. See, death is not the end. Death is not the last word to human existence. Death is not the last word for our world. Into this world, into our skin, God sent a man, Jesus of Nazareth. He lived a life of supreme love. He healed the sick that he met. He included those on the outside. He got on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples. His entire life was one of self-giving love. And then the death in this world caught up with him. And like every other natural thing, he died. And this death was violent and it was cruel and it was wrong and unjust. But on the third day, God, his father, he says, my God and your God, now my father and your father too, this one raised him from the dead. For the first time in history, life did not end in death. Death ended in life. It wasn't natural, it was supernatural. Only God could do this, and he did. And he did it not for Jesus alone, but that through Jesus, we might all experience resurrection life. Life for the whole world, for all things being made new, for us, on the other end of our death, to experience new life, resurrection. His resurrection means that every resurrection is possible. It means that your physical death is not the end for you. It means the physical death of those you love is not the end for them. It means the death of this physical world is not the end. 
It doesn't all go to darkness and death, but to life. And it means that any situation or any relationship or any community that is burdened by darkness and death in its large and small forms still has a promise of a future resurrection in life. Because this happened, did you hear when? While it was still dark on the first day of the week. The first day. The day of creation. On the first day, God, what, created. This is the first day of creation and now of new creation, of God getting to work again, rolling up his sleeves. It's as if he got up before the sun had even risen. He filled his thermos with coffee. He's driven off to the field. He starts the sprinklers and he's farming. He's getting to work. He's gardening. God the Father was a gardener in Genesis and Adam was his assistant in the garden and God spoke with him there and here we are again, now at a tomb in a garden in the darkness of death, but in a garden. And Jesus shows up speaking to people, getting to work. Mary arrived at the tomb while it was still dark and guess what? That tomb was already empty. That means Jesus overcame death while the world was sleeping. It means that God did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He did it while you were still in bed. That's the way that God's love and life comes to us, by way of his unbelievable grace. It means that God has made you and loved you and does things before you can even respond to it. His love comes first. It comes while it's still dark in the morning on the first day of the week. He comes and does salvation for us. We heard Colossians already. You have died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you too will appear with him in glory. Jesus gets to work on the first day of the week. And he does so by calling her by name. She's still confused. He's getting her to think about why she's mourning. What does she most deeply want? She can't even imagine or think up or expect or even think to ask for what she's about to get. But suddenly through her tears, thinking she sees a guy who got up early to garden, she hears this. Mary. And the Spirit opens her heart to recognize the voice. And she's obviously got her hands wrapped around him. She just jumps on him, whispering in his ear, teacher, Rabbi, and he said, you can't cling to me now. Can you imagine? What? what? It's like just, it's almost a joke. It's like the best version of getting punked in the history of the world. It's like a hijinks, like he's just set up this amazing immersive theater to surprise her. She hears that voice, that tone, that impossibility, and she hears it again, alive, calling her name. Now entertain with me for one moment. What if all of your mourning all of your searching, all of your longing were actually to hear the voice of a heavenly father who made you and knows you by name, knows you better than you know yourself, and in the middle of your bleary-eyed, half-baked, confused, and totally off sometimes, supposing what's possible and building your life and trying to take care of it, he showed up and through your tears and confusion spoke your name. Wouldn't you know then that nothing would be the same? Wouldn't you believe with the psalmist that I may be sowing in tears, but now I'm about to reap some shouts of joy? 
I went out weeping, carrying the seed for sowing, but I'm going to come home with shouts of joy, bringing my sheaves with me. What could not be made new? If this God who had gone through everything with you now showed up bringing the future resurrection into your present experience and brought you joy and a possibility of new life and new beginnings. Yes, a real one, an actual resurrection to an indestructible body, into a new creation of heaven and earth that will never go away. And yet now, a new beginning with God, knowing that he's your father, knowing that you're a child, knowing this is your family, knowing that he can make all things new, that no power can ever have the last laugh if it is laughing at God. Are we known as some of the most serious, caring, heartbroken, heartbroken, mourning people around because we know Good Friday, and yet also known as some of the most freely happy and hopeful people around? If we meet Jesus here working on the first day of the week, what will we not become and be and do with him. I'm going to close with some questions. A hundred years ago, some people of faith, none of us know who they are. Maybe a couple people have researched their names. But they built this place. And they showed up here. And a hundred years ago today, they celebrated the very first worship service in this space. And what were their dreams? Which dreams have come to fruition and which ones have gone somewhere to die? I don't know. I know some of the story of the congregation that is intending to sell us the space. I know some of our own dreams and hopes. But what I know now is that God has kept a community of faith worshiping in this space on the corner of Clinton and Lafayette for a hundred years. And we hope to be a part of him doing it for another generation or two or three to come. And if we are people of Good Friday, but also of Easter, of resurrection, what more can God do for the next 100 Easter's? And what might we experience? And what might our neighbors experience of God's new life? What if we got to work with God? Let him get to work with us on the first day of a new week over and over again. What if on the first day of the week, while we are still in the darkness of shadow of death, we learn deep in our bones that tomorrow is not promised to us, only today, and today is for loving God and others. What if on this first day, I discover how to go to Jesus for my security and my satisfaction? Not so much to try to plan my future, but to wait for God to come and bring new life to me. What if I decided my life is not about me, but I am about life? What if I discovered how little I need I don't really need to hoard. Instead, I can share anything I have extra with those who are in need. What if on the first day of the week we drop our plans for success and learn to depend on Jesus for our praise and for our daily bread? What if on this first day of the week we become safe and secure enough in Christ to tend the wounds of others? What if on this first day of the week we forget our old grievances and our rights and our place on the privilege ladder and we start seeing one another as the very beloved images of God that we are? What if on this first day of the week we remember Mary and being alone in a garden, terrified, and we imagine how lonely it must be for all of those who are stuck in prison or who live on the street or who have no family and we were to pool our love and our resources to make sure no one experienced that anymore? What if we believed with God in hilarious joy 
that the love of God in Christ can and will embrace and overcome all divisions, every border, overcoming every human wall that we make, black, white, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, that he is making one new human being in Christ. What if we believe our chief mission and glory as a human race is to let his love knock down all these barriers up to the gates of hell? What if your neighbor became your reward? What if your retirement account became the flourishing of your city? What if, what if new life is real? What if it's so real that he's at work and we can work with him until justice and joy reign from shore to shore, from every sidewalk to the, sidewalk to the top of every skyscraper? What if in just a few moments the sun comes up and the Son of God is waiting there, risen and crowned with glory and immortality, and he is embracing all the world in his healing hands? What if when the darkness is dispelled, nothing will ever be the same? What if we can be a part of our world being changed forever for the better? Is any of this likely? Is it unlikely? Will it happen how I imagine it? Certainly not. I don't know. There is one thing I know on this Easter Sunday. We don't serve a God of likely or unlikely. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Mm-hmm.